tilted black beret, her dark glasses, and bright red t-shirt proclaiming her membership in SAGE. Later in the decade, when she could no longer walk the whole way, Miss Hampton would be the center of a mob of younger lesbian women all fighting for the right to push her wheelchair down the avenue. <laughs> Mabel Hampton, domestic worker, hospital matron, entertainer, had walked down many roads in her life, not always to cheering fans. Her persistent journey to full selfhood in a racist and capitalist America is a story we're just beginning to learn to tell in our lesbian and gay history work. Over the past five years, I have been dazzled at our heady discussions of deconstructionism, at our increasingly sophisticated academic conferences on gender representation, at the publication of sweeping communal and historical studies and at our brave biographies of revered figures in American history in which the authors speak clearly about their subject's sexual identity. But my grief at the loss of Mabel Hampton turned my attention elsewhere. When I was offered this great honor, I knew I had to speak of her because her life in this country was the story we are in danger of forgetting in our rush of language and queer theory. I also knew that I would have to confront racism in my own relationship to Ms. Hampton. Our two lives, Ms. Hampton's and mine, first intersected at a sadly traditional and suspect crossroads in, this, in the history of the relationships between black and white women in this country. These relationships are set in the mentality of a country that in the words of Professor Linda Myers could continue for over 300 years to kidnap an estimated 50 million youths and young adults from Africa, transport them across the Atlantic with half dying, unable to withstand the inhumanity of the passage. In some warm month of 1952, my small white Jewish mother took her breakfast in a Bayside Queens luncheonette. Sitting next to her was a small black Christian woman. For several weeks, they breakfasted together. Before they each went off to work, my mother to the office where she worked as a bookkeeper, Miss Hampton to the home she cleaned and the children she cared for. One morning, as Miss Hampton told me the story, she followed my mother out to her bus, and as Regina sat down in her seat, she threw the keys to our apartment out the bus window to Miss Hampton, asking her to consider working for her. This working relationship was not to last long because of my mother's own financial instability. I do remember Miss Hampton caring for me when I was ill, I remember her tan raincoat with a lesbian paperback in its pocket. <laughs> its jacket bent back so no one could see the two women in the shadows on its cover. I remember when I was 12 years old asking my mother as we did a laundry together one weekend whose men's underwear we were washing since no man lived in our apartment. <laughs> They're Mabel, she said. <laughs> 
In future years, Regina Mabel and her wife Lillian became closer friends, bound together by a struggle to survive and by my mother's lesbian daughter, me. Miss Hampton told me during one of our afternoons together that when Regina suspected I was a lesbian, she called Miss Hampton late that night and threatened to kill herself if I turned out that way. I told her she might as well go ahead and do it. <laughs> because it wasn't her business what her daughter did, and besides, I'm one and it suits me fine. Because Ms. Hampton and I later formed a relationship based on our commitment to a lesbian community, I had a chance much later in life when Ms. Hampton herself needed care to reverse the image this society thrives on, black women caring for white people. The incredulous responses we both received in my Upper West Side apartment building when I was Ms. Hampton's caretaker showed how deeply the traditional racial script still resonates. To honor her, to touch her again, to be honest in the face of race, to refuse the blankness her material struggle to survive and her cultural struggle for beauty. Bread and roses, the workers' old anthem. This is what the nagging voice wanted me to remember, the texture of the individual life of a working woman. After her death on October 26, 1989, when Deborah and I were gathering her papers, we found a box carefully marked, in case I pass away, see that Joan and Deb get this at once, Mabel. On top of the pile of birth certificates and cemetery plot contracts was a piece of lined paper with the following typed entries. 1915 to 1919, Public School 32, 8B, Jersey City. 1919 to 1923, Housework, Dr. Krauss, Jersey City. 1923 to 1927, Housework, Mrs. Parker, Jersey City. 1927 to 1931, Housework, Mrs. Katim, Brooklyn. 1932 to 1933, Housework, Dr. Carland, New York City. 1934 to 1940, Daily Housework, Different Homes. 1941 to 1944, Matron, Hammerland Manufacturing Company, New York City. 1945 to 1953, Housework, Mrs. Jean Nate. 1948 to 1955, when this list was done, Attendant, New York Hospital. 1954 to 1955, General Daily Work. Lived, 1935, 271-West 122nd Street, New York City. Lived, 1939 to 1945-West 111th Street, New York City. Lived, 1945 to the current, 663-East 169th Street, Bronx, New York City. 
compiled in the mid-50s when Miss Hampton was applying for a position at Jacoby Hospital, the list demanded attention, a list so bare and yet so eloquent of a life of work and home. Since 1973, the start of the Lesbian History Archives, I knew Miss Hampton's story must be told, but I was not a trained historian or sociologist. I attended every session I could on doing lesbian history work, and together we all tried to formulate the right questions that the, we thought would elicit the kind of history we wanted. What did you call yourself in the 20s? How did you and your friends dress in the 40s? What bars did you go to? In the late 70s, when I started doing oral history tapes with Miss Hampton, I soon learned how limited our methods were. Here is a typical early exchange, and remember, I was much younger. <laughs> Joe, do you remember anything about sports? Did you know women who liked to play softball? Were there any teams? <laughs> Miss Hampton, no. <laughs> Women, they didn't care too much about them, them softballs. They liked the soft women. <laughs> didn't care about any old softball. Cut it out. <laughs> I soon realized that Miss Hampton had her own narrative style, tightly connected to how she had made sense of her life. But it wasn't until I had gone through every piece of paper she had bequeathed us that I had a deeper understanding of what her lesbian life had meant. Lesbian and gay scholars argue over whether we can call a woman a lesbian who lived in a time when that word was not used. We have been very careful about analyzing how our social sexual representation was created by medical terminology and cultural terrors. But here was a different story. Miss Hampton's lesbian history is embedded in the history of race and class in this country. She makes us extend our historical perspective until she is at its center. The focus then is not lesbian history, but lesbians in history. Preparing for this talk gave me a new understanding of the saying Miss Hampton loved to flaunt. When she was asked, Miss Hampton, when did you come out? She always replied, what do you mean? I was never in. <laughs> the audience always cheered this assertion of lesbian identity, but now I think Miss Hampton was speaking of something more inclusive. Driven to fend for herself as an orphan, as a black working woman. Uh, 